Hello and welcome to a podcast about tactics. I'm John McKenzie and I'm joined by a man who knows Real Madrid from Ancelotti to Zidane. Om Arvind. Om, how are you? I'm doing all right. It's been an incredibly busy week, but well, I guess the week is not going to end quite yet, but not a bad way to transition to the end of the week. Jumping on a, on one of the few podcasts I listen to quite regularly, not because I don't respect a lot of the podcasts out there, but weirdly enough, ironically enough, it's not my preferred form of content. I'm a reader, but there's just been too many good guests on. So I've had to listen to as many as I could. I've got up to the Thiago episode and yeah, I'm, I'm excited to be on. I'm slightly nervous as you are already aware about having to live up to the reputation of the people that have come before, but hopefully I can, I can do it justice. I'm sure you will. As long as you don't sound like you're recording in a cave, you'll be better than Case Van Hammond. So and thank you for bearing with my terrible intro as well. But Om is the editor of the Managing Madrid channel, the host of the Las Blancas podcast. He runs a substack called Tactical Rant and I can only highly recommend that Substack is a brilliant Substack. He's also written for various outlets such as Analysis Evolved, Analytics FC and the Woso Collective. Unsurprisingly, if for anyone who knows um, our topic today is Real Madrid, specifically the question of how elite clubs approach tactics. But before we get to that, thanks to those of you who have signed up to the Patreon. As ever, a reminder that one of the best ways for me to build my audience is by word of mouth. So if you do like this podcast, do recommend it to those people who you think would enjoy it. But enough of that time to get to talking Real Madrid. As I've said, we're going to be spending most of our time today talking about the question of how tactics function for elite sides. But I think What's so interesting about what we're going to do today is that when we've been talking before we got into this was the fact that you were very clear that the context of how Real Madrid works is important. And so we'll start off by talking about a lot of the contextual stuff before moving into the tactical things. We organised this podcast recording before the recent El Clasico fixture that was played. And obviously Real Madrid got battered in that. I should say the men's team because the women's team fared a little bit better. But I do wonder, like with that as the context, that El Clasico where you lost 4-0, whether or not that makes us come down very heavily on the on the side of actually maybe Real Madrid do need to have better tactics. Do you want to just talk a little bit about how you come out of an El Clasico like that? Yeah, I, I mean, it is really funny that that happened like right before this because the overwhelming mood, and obviously Madridistas are pretty reactionary, like most fans from really big clubs or just maybe most fans in general. And the prevailing mood is that this is it, right? This is the moment where we need a tactics manager. Yeah, so Kian Sobani, chief editor of Managing Madrid, he wrote a really well-written article, but also kind of a brutal one, just giving his honest, immediate thoughts after El Clasico and Ancelotti versus Xavi. And the title was something like, the El Clasico defeat reveals the gulf in tactical acumen between Ancelotti and Xavi. I mean, a pretty scathing headline, but given what we saw and you and I were talking about, you were asking me questions about, like no one really understood what Carlo was trying to do. That is the mood right now in, in the Madrid fan base. And it's not always the most consistent moves. A lot of times you've had Madrid fans in the past be like, no, you can't just have like a, a pure tactics manager. It doesn't work at the club. But when you have defeats like this, that almost like feel like inflection points in the culture, it's really interesting. I, I don't think I've ever seen the fan base this united around the idea that we need a different manager. Now, if we beat Chelsea somehow in the Champions League, I assure you the opinion will change. But right now, I, I will say maybe it does bias some of the analysis I'm going to put forth, but hopefully not too much because these are things I've been thinking about for a very long time. I should say at this point that you are 
nine points clear in the league as things stand. And so clearly there's a sense in which a lot of this stuff is going to be reactionary and there's clearly something that is working at, at Madrid now the, the question may come down to whether or not you want to win more Champions League than, than leagues and, and that obviously as you've said Xavi now being at Barcelona and, and having that impact on them may change things as well and I don't want to really jump too quickly into, into this because I think we'll get back into this towards the end of this episode but I am hyper aware that I don't want us to just be reactionary and say well you know if you had a manager who was, who was tactically astute then not this would be happening but let's move on and and get into the contextual stuff then because I I do fear that we will end up putting the cart before the horse one of the things that you wanted to to talk about as I've mentioned is a brief overview of what Real Madrid are because that informs squad construction managerial selection etc so I think this is a really interesting place to start because I think a lot of people when they want to talk about tactics they want to talk as though each team, each manager is presented with a tabula rasa, a blank slate, which they just draw out their ideal tactical approach on. But I do think it's really important that the, the context of the club is taken into account as well. I think those those aims and goals are fundamental to the, the tactical approach that the team takes. So let's start off by you giving us a bit of an overview of the raison d'etre of, of Real Madrid and we'll move from there to how that informs the way that the, the club has approached tactics in that sense. Yeah, I think the way Real Madrid function can make it quite difficult to implement the types of processes that we see in the premier examples, basically Manchester City, Liverpool. And fundamentally, I guess, Real Madrid, you could argue, and many people have argued this is a club without a philosophy. I don't know if I'd say that, but it's certainly one that's like vague and broad enough that I see why people say it. Because fundamentally, what Real Madrid kind of project themselves as a brand. So this, especially under Florentino Perez, going all the way back to the 50s, it's kind of been the same, but especially under Florentino Perez right now is this idea of projecting superiority or projecting greatness. Not all that unique necessarily, like this is something most super clubs want to do, but it just does feel a little extra with Real Madrid in terms of there needs to be this spectacle associated with what Real Madrid achieved. So, and this is why it's so vague because all the words I'm saying right now are in a sense, not unique to Madrid, but in a sense, unique because of how much they're emphasized as part of what the club means. So there are obviously numerous exceptions, right? This idea of spectacle is not necessarily associated with coaches like Mourinho and Benitez who come to the club, although Real Madrid were really fun when Mourinho were there at least the first two years, but certainly not with coaches like Benitez. So more than anything else, there needs to be winning happening at Real Madrid. And that's what can create those exceptions. But if we can, it needs to happen with the best players in the world, the most marketable players in the world who attract the most eyes and create this, just this buzz around the club and makes the the Bernabeu and and Real Madrid kind of like this entertainment center of the sport. And so that influences Madrid's tactics or tactical approach or lack of one in an indirect way because that kind of club ethos about there it, there needs to be greatness. There needs to be spectacle. It everything just needs to be extra and we need to be kind of like a celebrity club in a sense will influence to a certain extent the players that we sign. I mean, the obsession with Mbappe and Haaland that we've been seeing for not just this season, but for quite a while now, has just become absolutely intoxicating, right? And if we end up signing both of those players, 
those are going to create numerous tactical questions and possibly impact certain things in a negative way, like we're seeing at PSG, right? And so those are things that are just always going to be there with Real Madrid, at least under Florentino Perez and as the club culture continues as is, that are going to influence what the tactical approach is going to be because you need to you need to adapt to those players, right? Now, it's it's funny that given that the managerial select, selection like seems to have no rhyme or reason whatsoever in that we will go from selecting Santiago Solari to being in talks with Julian Nagelsmann to following up Carlo Ancelotti with Rafa Benitez. And so there actually isn't a particular type of coach that we look for, at least under Florentino Perez. It's more a case of whoever is available in the moment. And can you just handle the squad we put in front of you? Can you make something of a somewhat random assortment of players? We'll talk about the recruitment process in a bit, which I think is actually a really interesting thing to get into. But that's kind of how it all happens, right? Is there's the brand of Real Madrid first and foremost that links in a way to some of the players that we sign and how we construct the squad. And then that then it comes back to the manager. And, and it's about in the particular time that we need a coach, who is available and who can kind of handle what's put in front of them. And that then influences the, the tactics that come, right? So it's it's like tactics are being decided each and every season, what it's going to be based on the players and based on the coach. And, and I'll, I'll get into like really kind of investigating what that means at a more particular level when we talk about, you know, recruitment and the coaches that we had and, and what follows. Do you think the board have ever really been that interested in the tactical side of things? Has there ever been any intention by them for for the tactical things to be considered? Or is do you think that's something that's just happened? As you've said, it's gone on and they've realized that you're just looking for managers who are largely being able to handle the players that are put in front of them. I don't think it's been of particular concern. I mean, I'd assume they would consider it, but I don't think it's at the the top of their considerations. Like Florentino Perez, who we're also going to talk about a little bit, He's done many things that are quite effective for Real Madrid, mainly on the financial side. But when it comes to his actual footballing mind, I mean, I I don't need to say anything about it because there have been many critiques from many other people in the past. And yeah, I I mean, I would not say we would go out of our way to pick up a particular coach just based on the way they manage. But at the same time, we're not averse to the idea of a tactician. Like I can see Julian Nagelsmann here because... We're aware that he's a good coach. We're aware that he's doing promising things. And what what would matter to us at the end of the day would be like, is he successful with what he does? Does he appear to be successful? And then is he available at the time that we might need him? And then we could see him come to Madrid. And for a period of time, Madrid might be a really tactical side. It's just that as things have played out over the last several years, a lot of these coaches, just the timing has not worked out. Like Pochettino would be here if he had not signed that contract literally a week before Zidane left, right? So that's kind of how it works. And Real Madrid are, are really strange in that respect. I would say actually a good similarity, both in terms of managerial selection and squad construction is Chelsea, right? So everyone talks about Liverpool City. Chelsea in many respects are kind of the Real Madrid of the Premier League in terms of the way they approach things, which is just more on a case-by-case basis. I'm going to read to you a list of managers from the last decade because I find this quite interesting. This is the last decade's worth of managers at Real Madrid. So Juan de Ramos, Manuel Pellegrini, Jose Mourinho, Carlo Ancelotti, Rafael Benitez, Zinedine Zidane, Julian Lopetegui, Santiago Solari, 
the return of Zinedine Zidane and then the return of Carlo Ancelotti. Interested in hearing if you think there's anything that links these coaches. I, I suspect you're going to say no, but is there any rhyme or reason to these coaches? Is it just simply, as you've said, those managers who were available at the time who the board of management felt could handle the squad? No, it appears like completely random, right? There's really nothing that connects so many of these coaches. I, I would actually say like Julian Lopetegui and Zidane, at least the way their teams end up playing can actually be somewhat similar in terms of they can get a lot of possession. They go to the final third. And then in that respect, they can, they can rely on crossing too much or something like that. But I doubt that's why Lopetegui came in, right? I think it was more the fact that he had a really good relationship with a lot of the Real Madrid players in the Spanish national team. And he was willing enough to come to Real Madrid that he actually ended up losing his, his job with Spain. And so, yeah, it's, it's really just a case-by-case basis. And there's nothing about this Real Madrid way of playing that's ever really existed, right? It's just about, can you win the trophies? And if the time allows, if the competition allows, can you do it playing spectacular football, which would mean scoring lots of goals and having like really, really good entertaining players in your in your squad, like the Galacticos era. A name that you've mentioned a few times already in this episode is Florentino Perez. He's clearly the guy who is controlling everything. For those of us who don't know anything about the behind the scenes at Real Madrid, could you just give us a quick overview of Perez and the role that he plays at the club? So he does play quite a hands-on role. And in terms of his interaction with the team, it would depend on on the manager to the extent to which he's involved. For example, when Mourinho was here, the bargain that existed was Mourinho is going to come and he's going to bring us back to Barca's level or help us surpass them. But Mourinho needs a ton of control. And that was a fairly unique situation. Otherwise, Florentino likes to be fairly hands-on, although his role in kind of the sporting director aspect can be slightly exaggerated. I mean, he will have particular players he wants, right? He wanted Gareth Bale. He wanted James Rodriguez. He wants Mbappé and Haaland. But from a general perspective, and we'll get into this when we talk about recruitment, there are people who specialize in that and work on that, right? And so while we don't have like a true, true sporting director in the sense of how it might exist at other clubs. We do have a department whose job is to do the recruitment and who will be looking at most players that Florentino is not. Like I doubt Florentino Perez is the one who scouted like Eduardo Camavinga. You know, I'm sure he knows about him and he would have okayed everything. Everything has to be okayed by him, but it's not like he's deciding player by player, everyone Real Madrid signs. And so Florentino Perez as a person has been about taking Real Madrid into the modern age, especially from like a financial brand perspective, right? So obviously his goal is to win everything every season, but that's actually not unique at all to him. Like a lot of people will say, well, Florentino is a super impatient president, but if you go through the history, that's been how every president has run Real Madrid because that's just the culture of the club. So what separates him at least a little bit in terms of his goals is like he has this obsessive desire to compete financially with the oil clubs, right? Like that is his immediate short-term goal right now. And that's the reason for the Super League, essentially. And then the other side of it is that he wants the biggest, most grandest spectacle in the world to happen at Real Madrid. His, his other side project, aside from the Super League, is the new stadium renovations that are occurring, right? The spectacular stadium with retracting floors that can give you all sorts of different fields and stuff with different like combinations of grass or something. This is a stadium that 
will potentially host NFL games. I think it'll have a mall and its own entertainment center. It like he wants Madrid to be a financial and entertainment hub, right? The biggest, the best. That's like he he wants to take that to the maximum. The one thing about Florentino that I think goes under the radar and that might be most different about him compared to other presidents in the past, is he seems to desire, if he can, to have coaches who, like, quote-unquote, understand Madrid. And so there's been this trend now, starting with Zidane, of having former Madrid players go into coaching in the youth system and then kind of come out as potential, like, backup candidates to be coach of Real Madrid if other people are not available, right? Like, Raul has been consistently discussed as potentially being a future coach of Real Madrid. Xabi Alonso, who's lower down in the youth categories, is consistently discussed as someone who can coach Real Madrid. Now, I don't know how much of this is about Florentino just looking at Zidane and being like, there's a potential gold mine here, right? Like there's some magical combination that works, or this is something he just kind of always wanted and that he does kind of have a sense in his mind of what Madrid culture is. And he wants people who understand that and and could just naturally translate their managerial style to the dressing room on the pitch without this kind of need to transition from, from an outside environment that might be different. Let's talk a little bit about the recruitment side of things. Obviously, the word that is often mentioned with Real Madrid's recruitment is Galacticos. And obviously, that is the, the approach where you're bringing in these star players, as you've mentioned. Do you think that this approach to bringing in elite playmakers actually works against the idea of a coherent tactical system is the decision to build a team of Galacticos a conscious decision against tactics so we had a question from one of our patrons Emilio who said do you think a club like Real Madrid can ever be on the front foot in regards to new tactical ideas and developments or does their status as a mega club condemn them to buy these ideas and styles of players at full price I think that sort of links in to the same question from a different side so how would you answer some of these questions I feel two ways about it So I think the culture of the club, the demand of the fans for spectacles and stars, because ultimately, yeah, there are some Madridistas like me who might be concerned about how we would balance an Mbappe, Haaland attack and all of that. And where does Vinicius play and everything? But the vast majority of fans, they they want these players like they don't care. Right. And I I mean, on, on a certain level, you can't blame them because it's pretty cool to think about those those people being in a Madrid shirt. And so that whole idea and that whole part of it can make it difficult because there's a real demand from the top institutional level to the bottom, to the fans for this kind of recruitment. Like we had a period where Real Madrid were not doing that because of financial difficulties, uh, because of COVID, well, relative financial difficulties, because, and then transitioning into COVID and all of that. And like fans were like furious, right? That was a, that was a whole Florentino out kind of brief era of, of, of the fan base, right? So there is those pressures, but if that becomes detrimental to winning, there might be some kind of inflection point where Madridistas demand a more tactical manager, which is relates perfectly to the classical loss, right? So in a certain sense, at any given moment, it might just depend on the general mood of what's happening, but there is a long institutional history of, of this type of recruitment. So I do think that it can be an impediment to trying to create quote unquote, a more tactical approach, which really is about having a coherent connection between the sporting processes on the recruitment level to the coach that you bring in, right? Like at Man City, at Liverpool, 
really more at Liverpool because Man City have had a decent amount of misses, but it seems like they become better and better at this over time, especially in response to Liverpool. But like, there's, there's this really good connection between what the coach wants, what their philosophy is and the players they need to bring in and how that continually feeds back into each other, which just doesn't really exist at Madrid. Right. So that can be a barrier, but at the same time, this is like a self-enforced problem. If I want to call it that, because Madrid have the resources to change it if they want to, right? Like, yeah, we, we, we pay attention to the, the pressure of the fan base a little bit because it does matter somewhat. But ultimately, Florentino Perez, after doing the whole Super League thing, came out and said, like, why would I consult the fans, right? And ultimately, at the end of the day, Florentino does what he wants to. If there was, and I, I mean, I'm not necessarily suggesting that, that, that this just has to happen because the candidates that I'm aware of don't look particularly appealing. And there's actually a pretty stringent selection process that removes a lot of people from even being eligible. But for example, if there was a new president at Real Madrid and they just had a different vision for how the club needed to be run, I don't see why Real Madrid couldn't change. It's not like there's something so deep rooted in Real Madrid that would just prevent you from doing that. Like for example, at Barcelona, if someone came in and said, I'm going to change the Barca way, which I don't think most people even know what that means, but let's say they came in and said that there would be a violent backlash and it might not be possible. Right. But if someone came in and and was in charge of Real Madrid and said, we're going to have a more process oriented perspective, or we're going to link the sporting aspect to the coaching aspect more directly. We're going to institute a sporting director who has greater control. I don't think there's going to be a revolution in the streets from Madrid because ultimately if it wins, that's what anyone cares about. So yeah, I, I, I do think it makes it a little bit difficult being a super club and the culture that we have. But when it comes down to the fact that winning is what's most important at the end of the day, like I don't see any reason why it can't change. It's just that as things are now, it's not likely to. And I guess that brings us nicely back to the question of the European Super League, because at the moment, as things are structured for Real Madrid, I suppose winning at all costs is, is a plausible way of approaching this. They, they are still in a situation where they can be, as we've said, nine points clear in the league, despite maybe not playing the best football when it comes to tactics. So given the the events of the last few weeks at Madrid, there's a sense in which there could be a realisation that it's not just good enough to have the best players when it comes to a European Super League. Suddenly you're in a league where everyone has the best players and you need to start making gains in other areas, namely the tactical side of things as well. So what's your thoughts on the on the European Super League and, and how that adds a sort of interesting background against which we can read the issues at Madrid? Yeah, so the European Super League, it's really interesting because it has to be a financial ploy over a sporting ploy because it would make Real Madrid a lot worse off in terms of their ability to win things just because we'd constantly be facing off teams with generally equivalent talent aside from a few legacy clubs who, who probably shouldn't be there based on sporting merit, as at least as, as things stand right now. And the marginal gains to accrue would be on the tactical side because of the fact that the, the talent on the pitch would be more equal, right? Like you can't shit house wins as easily because you're facing a club that has 1% of the budget that you do. And so it would put a significant pressure on Real Madrid and other clubs who, who maybe operate in a similar way to be like, well, maybe we should spend crazy amounts of money trying to secure a Nagelsmann instead of, instead of a superstar player, which is not to say that a manager has that level of effect on a squad. I personally don't believe so. I think players are the most important at the end of the day. But again, if the, if the talent is equal, then the the relative gain to be made would be the manager, right? And so that would be interesting to see. But 
just want to be clear that to me is not an endorsement of the Super League, or at least I'm not making that argument. I think just as an aside, a really good way to make big super teams have to focus on tactics and, and stop being, you know, I guess, lazy in a sense is to reduce the financial disparities between the bottom and top clubs. So they're forced to be more clever about finding these games rather than just splurging on, on all the best players. I do think from a pure tactical perspective, if I could bring myself to watch something like the Super League, it would actually be really interesting. And we'd see potentially everything kind of converging to a really high level of tactics because of, of the pressures that would be there to win, right? I, I just think that's what would be necessary. I mean, at least that's how I see it. Maybe things could pan out in a way that I'm not envisioning, but it, it seems pretty logical to me. Yeah, we had another Patreon question here as well from friend of the podcast, Ninad Barbadikor, maybe touching a little bit more on the Champions League side of things, which is something we haven't really talked about. But he said, uh, hi, guys, really excited for this episode. My question is, is a largely laissez-faire approach beneficial in knockout competitions at the highest level? Because in the league, although the tactical battles are probably more varied, it's the intangibles that matter more, confidence, momentum, etc. So what's, what's your thoughts on that? My views on this have progressed rapidly over the last couple of years. So Generally speaking, I do think a laissez-faire approach could be beneficial in knockout competitions because it's super matchup focused and you might need to make more adjustments than you usually would to go out and beat these teams. And generally speaking, the especially if you go back in time, the tactics coaches just kind of had their way of playing and that was what they just went with, right? And certainly there are managers who are still like that today. And so the contrast to them, especially someone like Carlo Ancelotti, who is is real famous for saying, my philosophy is that I don't have any philosophy, is they're presented as the more flexible options. And this therefore gives them advantages in knockout competitions because they're more likely to try more extreme things to gain an edge over the opponent. And certainly with Zidane, some of his best moments in the Champions League have come from these types of one-off adjustments that have allowed him to turn games around, certain substitutions, shape changes and stuff. So I think when if you're looking at it in that way, there is an advantage. My thing is, and, and, and this is something we've really seen recently, is that the top, top tacticians are basically as flexible, right? Because you have tactical philosophies that have become so comprehensive now, especially positional play ones, that what you're doing is you're just adjusting within the same logic of the philosophy itself, right? So this is something that I actually talked about directly after the classical loss on the Managing Madrid podcast, right? Is Arsenal under Mikel Arteta, what are they kind of marketed as? How do they usually play a possession-based, high-pressing, positional play team, right? Yet, we saw them defend in an extremely effective deep block versus Liverpool, They ended up, Liverpool ended up winning 2-0 that game, I think. But for the first half, especially, there was just no way for Liverpool to get through them. And then earlier in the season, Arsenal were down to 10 men, defended incredibly well and came away with a point, I think, to the point that it actually motivated me to write an article about how to defend 10 v 11 because it was so good. How is it that a team that is famed for being possession oriented, et cetera, et cetera, is so good at just being able to switch to a deep block like that? How is it that Thomas Tuchel, whose background originally comes from the Gegen Press Ragnik approach, though. I think if you were to classify him, he's he's a bit more similar to the Spanish school in terms of how he wants to control games, his ideas and possession and stuff. How is it that he comes to Chelsea and his path to a Champions League title was 
creating arguably the best defensive unit in the world? How is it that Pep Guardiola, when the time came in 2021, when COVID ball made pressing less effective for a brief period of time because they just couldn't go with the same intensity due to the fixture congestion, how is it that he kind of adapted and made City like a genuine defensive unit sitting off in slightly deeper stances? It's because these coaches have mastered the fundamentals of tactics, right? Ideas of structure, compactness that can be applied in a variety of ways because they understand how to manipulate it so well. And in their specific tactical philosophies, it's not like they're actually making crazy divergences. There's a logical connection between each of the types of plans they're moving between. And so what I would say now, and, and this is still more of like a specific case thing, like you can probably only point to a handful of managers who are like this, but if you're just taking those managers, them actually having a philosophy, unlike Carlo, enhances their ability to be flexible because it's not just about the willingness to do something different. It's about the level at which you execute doing something different. And what we're seeing now is Carlo might want to try something different, but there is a risk that comes with these one-off changes because the players might not necessarily be used to it, or they don't understand the logic of how it transitions from what they're doing already. And certain managers who are doing these one-off types of adjustments may not have the particular skills to make that one-off work in a way that different managers might not, right? So it's interesting that we're in a period right now where Carlo Ancelotti has long been the flexible coach who can adapt to anything. That's his reputation. And that's been true for a long time. But his limitations, especially on the pressing side and his ability to construct a coherent press actually makes us less flexible because we cannot go out in a game and try to high press at a high level. Like that is not an option that we can legitimately turn to because the bar of execution has got to a point that Carlo can no longer reach. And so, yeah, I would say that in a general perspective, when you take all coaches as a whole, yes, I think a laissez-faire approach does give you an advantage in these matchups. And this willingness to make changes is beneficial. But when we get to the elite, I think it's a disadvantage because it's about the level at which you're executing when you make that adjustment that can really cost you if you're not able to reach it. Versus PSG, there was just huge deal about Real Madrid coming out and being more aggressive, but it only kind of worked because PSG is also a side that can't press and control a game either. One of the things that I like to talk about when it comes to this is the difference between first order and second order knowledge. I usually talk about this actually in terms of over automated tactical systems where you're sort of teaching your players to play in a certain way and they have that first order knowledge of how to play tactically. But when you come to managers like Nagelsmann, Tuchel and Guardiola, what these guys are doing is they're they're teaching their players a second order of knowledge as well, which is an understanding of like the deeper principles of play, which allow them to then be a lot more flexible in, in the ways that they play as well. And it sounds as though from what you're saying that the Carlo Ancelotti is sort of not even teaching his, his, his players have a sort of zero order of knowledge when it comes to tactical things i mean it sounds a bit harsh to say it that way and it really it really actually has been tough for me to to go through this period with carlo because he's my favorite coach of all time right just simply because as i was becoming a real madrid fan and i had that divorce with Mourinho, which was a really ugly exit carlo comes in gives us all these great moments and the time he was there he actually did a fantastic job i just think the times have changed and it requires a different level of specific knowledge that he doesn't really have anymore. And I think we underrate how easy it is to adjust, right? And we'll get to this when we talk about Zidane, but you can't just like read an article on high pressing 
and then go and implement it, right? Like, I, I think a lot of what, and I'm talking about myself here because I'm not a coach. I'm just, you know, a, a self-made tactical analyst, which still feels weird to call myself that because I don't do it in any professional capacity, but you can have the ideas, you can have the knowledge, but you need training regimens, right? You need specific ideas when you're off the pitch to be able to translate it into something successful. And I'm sure Carlo understands that there needs to be better compactness on the pitch, right? Like, obviously he can see that, but does he have the acquired knowledge to put that into a training session to be able to find a way to communicate that, that in a way that's necessary in the modern game. I think that's what's lacking. And I think that's because a lot of the way tactical knowledge is passed on in the coaching sphere. And look, I'm talking a little bit out of my, my, my area of expertise here. So anyone listening can, can take this with a grain of salt, but it's passed on by like apprenticeships by you learning under someone and saying, okay, this is the right training session to use. This is the right way to communicate it to the players. And when you go through several decades of coaching, where is he going to pick up that knowledge from, right? So I I think that's kind of where Carlo is at at the moment. And we talk about managers declining. I don't know if that ever really happens. It's really about just methods in the game moving on, right? I don't know if I should save it, but real quick, because we were talking about like first order knowledge, second order knowledge, automatisms and stuff like that, and then advantages and knockout rounds. I think the advantage of a laissez-faire approach comes when you face a team that is more about ingraining first order knowledge within a team, right? Because then you can make a wild adjustment that they just cannot adapt to, and then it ends up benefiting you, right? So when Real Madrid played Atalanta, Zidane did a specific thing in the second leg, if I'm remembering correctly, where he had the shifting back four, back five system purely to mess with the man marking approach. And it was amazing. It was one of the best things that Zidane did that season. And so I think that's where that kind of comes into play. Yeah. And as a Leeds United fan, it's funny seeing under Bielsa, seeing uh, managers who you might not think were that great managers, often causing problems because of the man marking system. So I'm thinking managers like Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and, and Frank Lampard in particular. But that's another question for another podcast. You mentioned Zinedine Zidane, so it's probably best for us to move to talk a little bit about him. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on him. But it's a bit of a poison chalice question, this, because I think a lot of people want to be like, oh, <laughs> Zinedine Zidane was a bad manager, you know, he was good at managing all those egos and he wasn't particularly tactically interesting. But I suspect that there's probably a little bit more to it than that. Yeah. So I'm already nervous about how long this podcast is going to be, because I think this is the longest thing I'm going to talk about, mainly because I think Zidane's background is really interesting and reveals a lot about what we're talking about in terms of where is it that coaches get their knowledge from and how do they become considered like quote unquote tacticians, right? So Zidane retires after the 2006 World Cup. We all know that. And he just kind of takes a hiatus for, for like three years. And he realizes, nope, I can't live without football. I need to be associated with it. In 2009, he joins Real Madrid as some kind of advisor to Florentino Perez. And then in a year, becomes sporting director. Mourinho wanted him as sporting director initially. And Zidane later finds out that it's not really for reasons that he wanted. Mourinho wanted Zidane to be his attack dog, his guy in the boardroom, kind of fighting his case all the time. And Zidane's like, nah, I actually want to be a coach. And so after early 2012, he's just going across the youth teams, doing one-on-one sessions with players like Alvaro Morata, Hesse, and that's kind of his real introduction into the more coaching aspect of things. And so he realizes this is what I really love to do. And so he becomes an assistant coach under Carlo Ancelotti in the following season. And this is when he starts picking up his UEFA licenses and stuff. So 2013-14 
is actually the beginning, real beginning of Zidane's introduction into coaching and actually like seeking to get that specialized knowledge about the game. Like think about that for a second. We're talking about 13, 14, like that is less than a decade ago for a guy that ended up becoming Real Madrid coach just in in a few seasons that followed, right? So becomes assistant coach coach with Carlo for a season. After that, he he ends up getting the, the Castilla job. And just to kind of put a point on the extent to which Zidane was still going through the process of of becoming qualified as a coach is initially he was banned from being Castilla coach because he didn't have certain Spanish qualifications. He had French qualifications. There was some disconnect there. Real Madrid ended up winning the appeal. And from what I understand, it was actually a dumb rule. Johan Cruyff actually came out and defended Zidane, but it just kind of tells you like how early along in the process Zidane was as a coach at that point in time. And so this is kind of the period leading up to when he ends up taking over mid-season from Benitez in 1516, where he starts going around and talking the revered figures of the game, right? So he he has this long conversation with Bielsa about his ideas. And I think Bielsa was actually more excited to talk about Zidane than vice versa, because that was just the aura that Zidane had. And then obviously, famously, he had like a period with Pep where he just kind of observed some of the things that he was doing at Bayern. And and then he becomes coach at Real Madrid. So this goes back to the point I was making about how is it that coaches end up acquiring the information that they do, but more importantly, how do they acquire the information to implement these tactical ideas that they have, right? So a lot of times there's some kind of mentorship. Jesse Marsh is a Ralph Ragnick disciple, right? We can talk about the influences that Klopp and, and Tuchel have had. Like a lot of times there's some figure that they learn directly from they end up taking their methods, like taking a whole process with them that then over time, they might add adjustments to, but they're, they're taking a whole system with them. And those are the types of coaches we look at and say, those are the tactical coaches in different cases and exceptions, right? You might have a Pep Guardiola, who's a player under a coach where you've been there so long and you start to understand what that coach is doing so well that you can take that naturally into, into your coaching career and make that your own system, right? So Pep with his obvious Corifian influences and all of that. Zidane's influence is so eclectic and almost random feeling, right? Because it's not like he had any particular coach when he was playing that would cause him to like have a, a certain type of modern tactical approach for today's game. I mean, he played under Carlo Ancelotti and that's actually what motivated him to be assistant coach for Ancelotti. He's on record saying he was the only coach he'd be assistant coach for. So there is Carlo influences, right? So there is a certain laissez-fairness to how Zidane approaches tactics, but at the same time, he had a real interest in the ideas of Bielsa. He had a real interest in the ideas of Pep. But it's not like he actually ended up getting a full crash course into their methods. Like he just talked to them for a little bit. So how would you assess Zidane's style then? What is it that you think is underlying his principles when he's managing a football club? When you actually looked at the way Real Madrid played football in his time there, I think you can see these weird influences reflected in this like almost impossible to interpret philosophy of Zidane. Like for the longest time, I would just say like, this guy is impossible to assess because I don't know what it is he's actually trying to achieve on the field. And so a lot of people would just say he's like another Ancelotti, but I don't think that's true because there is a modern outlook to his ideas, like at the high conceptual level. And I think you can see this consistently over time with Real Madrid. And I do think it's not just because of the players he had, is he's a guy who really likes control. If he can, 
He wants to be the team on the front foot. He wants to press. He wants to counter press. He wants to retain possession at a low tempo. He wants to build play. He wants to set up rest defense if he could. The difference between him and like a pep and stuff is I think he lacks the really specific knowledge about how you implement that at a very technical level, right? And I think that is then reflected in some of the criticisms that will be aimed at Zidane tactics, which is like, you know, the possession isn't very incisive, right? The structure is strange. He lets player tendencies determine the way Real Madrid shape is too often, right? When, I mean, you messaged me about this when you were watching the 2018 Champions League final where Isco was playing in a diamond. It wasn't a diamond at all, right? Because you had so many ball dominant players who would just keep coming to the ball all the time. And Zidane was fine with that. So a lot of what you saw at Real Madrid were these excessive deep overloads, but it created incredible press resistance because of the players that he had and seemed to fit with Zidane's idea of controlling a game with the ball being able to, to pass through opposition. And so like, it's, it's, it's really interesting how you can have this kind of outlook that might be more modern. I don't know if modern is the word to use, but I've gone with it multiple times. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to keep saying that, but also, you know, have this kind of Carlo Ancelotti influence while also maybe lacking the training and, and the knowledge and accumulated knowledge over his very brief growth as a coach so far to be able to realize this modern outlook in a way that Tuchel or Pep can. So it's clear that you think that Zidane was a good coach. I'm just interested in where it is that you locate that goodness. What is it about Zidane that makes you think he was a worthy coach at the elite level? The other thing about Zidane is that he won't necessarily stick to this idea of control, et cetera, et cetera, and, and whatever his general preferred vision is in a way that others might, right? Like he has that Carlo aspect in that he will do the one-offs, right? He will just do something that seems completely random. And that's just about the mix of the influences. So I talked about the Atalanta game. There were matches against Juventus and Bayern where he ended up doing something completely different at halftime to just switch things up. And so he has that old school element of tactical genius is being able to throw something surprising at an opponent, right? There's this, there's always been this thing with Zidane is like, you can't predict what he's going to do next, which was a bit hyperbolic, but there was a sense that, especially in any knockout tie, he could just do something random that you weren't expecting. So he's this really interesting mix of the old school idea of tactical genius, which is really more about surprise and one-off changes versus like the philosophy coaches, which Zidane has also been influenced by. And when you include the fact that he's obviously incredible at managing a dressing room because he is who he is, right? He has that aura, he has dressing room respect, and that absolutely matters. It's not something to smirk at and act like it doesn't matter because Rafa Benitez did not have it and it killed his career at Real Madrid, right? So when you when you add that factor into it, that every single player in the world is going to respect this guy and what he says, that he by all accounts is humble and willing to learn and will accept that he doesn't know as many things as other people. The fact that he's shown tactical improvements, at least in my opinion, on defensive structure in his second stint. And he has specific games where he's really shined, right? Versus Atalanta, the game I was talking about. I think he is in a sense, almost like the perfect Real Madrid manager, right? Because he can manage the egos he has a certain flexibility that will always allow him to deal with all the random, you know, squad construction that's around him. But he also has enough of a modern outlook on things and seemingly enough of a grasp of certain pressing structures, specifically from 
4-3-3 translating 4-4-2. Whenever he's gone outside of that, it's it's been a real mess. But over time, like we got really solid in that. I think it's like he was almost designed in a lab in a sense to both be a good Real Madrid manager, but also reflect kind of this vagueness of Real Madrid and, you know, its philosophy or lack of philosophy and all of that. So, yeah, I, I do think he's, he's a good manager specifically for Madrid's context. But when it comes to the tactical side, he is not a great tactician. But I do think people are missing something when they just dismiss him entirely because I don't think he's the same thing as Ancelotti. I just think he's influenced by Ancelotti and people like him as much as he's influenced by these philosophy coaches. And due to like this extremely accelerated process to becoming a coach, was not really able to pick up all the specific tools he needed to do to be able to, to realize all these visions exactly. So this is the most interesting part of the discussion to me because I, I really do think Zidane is an incredible managerial figure to think about and analyze and really tests, I think, how you see the game and how you understand how coaching works. Yeah, I mean, we could have probably made the whole episode about Zidane. In hindsight, maybe I should have done that, but I could have listened to you talk about him for another hour, so don't worry too much about the length there. But let's move on. We, we need to get amongst the weeds of the tactics themselves at the moment. We'll just break it down simply into the in-possession stuff and then the out-possession stuff, and then we've got a few questions before we close. I've spent the last few weeks just watching back old games of Madrid to try and get a handle on some of the in-possession, out-possession stuff. It's funny because it's hard to really get my finger on a coherent in-possession approach at Madrid over the last couple of decades because, and partly this is because you've just had the same personnel for so long. So I was watching the, I think it was from 2016, the first leg of the semi-final in the Champions League against Manchester City. And this was like Manchester City before Pep. This is Manuel Pellegrini's Manchester City. And I think there's three players who aren't there anymore in that lineup. So would you say that actually a lot of the in-possession stuff has remained very, very similar over the last decade because that personnel has remained so similar for so long? Yeah, I would say there is some level of coherence over time because the in-possession stuff is going to be determined by the midfield. And when you have Kroos and Modric, even the most tactical coach in the world is going to kind of let them do their thing and be like, yeah, I trust you guys to be able to progress us up the pitch. And given that Casemiro has been a non-negotiable in that midfield since the middle of 2015-16, this kind of weirdness with how he moves ahead of Modric and Kroos and how they manage some of the weaknesses he has in possession has always been a feature over time. But like the main variation that has occurred is like the extent to which the manager uses Casemiro, right? So in the beginning with Zidane, it was just put Casemiro ahead of Modric and Kroos in the buildup phase. We won't have great central occupation because of that between the lines, but we'll move up the pitch pretty securely and then Casemiro can kind of rotate back out and help rest defense, the, the counterattack and all of that. And occasionally Casemiro will just be left free and like just use him as a way to progress past the, the first or second line of the opposition. Then when Ronaldo left, Zidane comes back, he just starts using Casemiro as like a genuine offensive threat, right? A secondary runner into the box, a focus on set pieces because we needed to find offense from somewhere. And one of the things with Zidane was, out of the all the adjustments and stuff he'd make, he just couldn't find more sophisticated solutions in possession, right? It was going to end up being this kind of laborious progression to the final third, lots of crossing. And when you lose Ronaldo, that's not necessarily maybe the best approach in the world. And so he was just like, if I'm going to put Casemiro ahead of Modric and Kroos, use him as a target in the box. And that worked genuinely well offensively to a certain extent, right? And 
just no one has, has like used Casemiro that aggressively besides Sidon. So I would say that's where the variations occur. But from a general perspective, you know, possession oriented, lower tempos, lots of switches of play. That's just always been a feature with Real Madrid ever since Kroos and Modric were here. And so I will say there has been some kind of coherent possession approach over these years, but mainly just down to personnel. We did have a question from Carl Carpenter, which fits in quite nicely here, actually, because he says a lot of the focus for Real Madrid next season is how they're going to fit the likes of Mbappe, Vinicius, Bonzema, etc. together in the same eleven. However, a lesson spoken about aspect is the makeup of the midfield. With a group of ageing players making up a key part of the unit, what is the best configuration going forward? Arguably, a good comparison is the team that Madrid beat last night, PSG. And I guess that that sort of follows on. Like, What's the next step after you inevitably have to move on from players like Kroos and Modric and Casemiro as well? So I think the short term is to seriously, I mean, Modric, I know we say he's ageless, but there have been declines in performance, right? And Casemiro, I didn't even realize, I only figured this out recently, he's 30 years old, like time has just flown. He has not had the greatest last few seasons in terms of consistency. He's been overworked, quite frankly, And he's been exposed in certain Champions League games. And so in the immediate term, given just the midfield we have at hand, I think moving Kroos to the pivot role and using more energetic ball-winning midfielders in front of him is a way to kind of get around this, refresh the midfield. And we have two in Valverde and Kamabinga that are are perfect for that role, which Carlo has just decided, like, he's not going to do that. He'd rather prefer Kamabinga on the wing, which literally happened one time, instead of playing like Kamavinga like that. But that is on the table. And in the very immediate term, that's how I'd look at it. But in terms of moving on from all of them, I think it's about just distributing the roles a bit more, right? Because it's probably not going to be possible to find someone who can carry a progression game like Modric and Kroos. And that's where the profiles of the players and how they fit together becomes exceedingly important. And I think it's just about finding a nice matchup between the midfield. And maybe that's where a more tactically oriented manager becomes important, right? Because if I'm honestly thinking about the way Chelsea's midfield looks, right? Because Jorginho, Conte, Mason Mount has flitted in between, you know, the central midfielders and, and like, you know, wide forward, inside forward role type things. But the way he's used them, the way he's used Kovacic, he's been real careful about maximizing what they're best at and really, really hiding what they're not great at, right? Which is why Jorginho ended up looking like so good again under Tuchel. It's not that he just became randomly better. Tuchel really understood what Jorginho should give him and constructed the system to really fit what he was doing. And then it flowed nicely into a lot of things Conte could do, right? Because he's not a distributor from deep, but in high tempo, fast combinations in the wing, he's actually pretty incredible. And you see a lot of that with Conte under under Tuchel. So I, I think that's kind of the way forward, right? Is if we're going to pick up players like Kamavinga, who are who at the I mean, he's going to grow a lot, but at the moment, really specialist type of player in terms of his ball winning, but mainly in possession, right? How he's going to progress you up the field is dribbling and taking players on. He's not a passer. He's not someone who controls the play. How do we pair him with other people in the midfield, especially when people like Kroos and Modric are gone? I think you have to think about building midfield that way. And and that's going to connect to maybe having managers who have much more specific ideas in possession. Well, let's move on to talk about the out-of-possession stuff. And again, I suppose PSG are a nice analogue here because the big question is about PSG is how do you 
fit in so many good players and still play a fairly high intensity game uh, so we had a question from Grant Gendo who said the general consensus seems to be that modern elite teams do or should favour an organised high pressing slash counter pressing approach without the ball what are your thoughts on that is it a necessity for sustained success when facing teams of a similar calibre or are there ways to win at the highest level that favour not simply sitting deep and countering which is a style a demanding fan base could see as being submissive so how would you go around answering that yeah i think versus elite teams it's not an absolute necessity because when you have the quality that you have up front right like when you have vinicius jr in your attack next to kareem benzema even if it's not the optimal approach you can sit off soak up pressure variance can go your way and then you can just find transitions in behind like no matter what it's going to be really difficult to stop some kind of offensive transition coming your way. I mean, Pep Guardiola found that out a lot in later Champions League knockouts. I mean, Grace, I think, I mean, she had like a whole series on Pep that like that was kind of her main point was that Pep in in certain knockout ties had the idea that he could go out and be as aggressive as he was being because he was going to control most transition, but three or four opportunities would still go against him. And when that was with higher caliber attackers, they could hurt you in those moments. So versus elite teams, I think it's less necessary But at the same time, I think it's the lower ceiling approach, right? I think having some level of capability to execute a pressing scheme or some concept of good rest defense is necessary and having some kind of clear structured ideas in possession, which is what would be required for rest defense. I think it's the much higher ceiling approach because it expands your options, right? Like we're, we're getting to the point where we're flipping like what tactical flexibility means, because as I mentioned before, it's about the level that you can execute it. For example, had we been able to go into that first leg versus PSG and maybe not even necessarily like all out press, but apply pressure higher up the field, find some kind of relief that wasn't right outside our own box. When the turnover came, we would have contested that game a lot more because again, there are smart things smart managers can do to contain offensive transition threat, especially when you're pinned back as far back as you did. So Pochettino had this back three system with Danilo intercepting all of the long balls to Vinicius and we just had nothing going, right? Sure, we still could have found a way through, anything could have happened, but you're playing more into variance for that approach to work. And my view is if you really want to simplify it, What top teams want is to reduce variance as much as possible because that's what allows your quality to shine. And so if you want your quality to shine, you probably want to be in control of the game in some way, shape, or form rather than constantly reacting to what the opposition is going to do. So I think it's possible. I think it will always be possible because football is a chaotic sport and you cannot control everything that happens. But if you really want to maximize your chances of winning versus the elite side, you need more options. And in certain moments, you're going to need to step forward and be more proactive because you just don't want to keep taking punishment and facing wave after wave of attack right outside your own box. Like side note, and I, we're going to we're going to talk very briefly about the women's team. Maybe um, this is what makes the Barcelona women's team so, so good. And which is what I think people don't grasp, right, is they, they say you always need to sit off them, sit off them, sit deep, deep. But their counter pressing is so good and their rest defense is so good. That's a boon to them because they can just keep coming at you and there's absolutely no way to find relief versus that, right? Now, there's a disparity between them and, and the other teams that is going to shrink over time and probably not going to be as effective in maybe a couple of years, maybe just slightly less effective. But I think there's a similar problem we're talking about here when we think about, can you be passive versus elite sides? Yes, but 
I don't prefer it. I would like a different option. And that was actually my concern with Carlo Ancelotti coming in. I said this a lot in a lot of private messages when people are like, this is going to be good for the Champions League. I wasn't so sure because if we don't have the ability at all to go out and be on the front foot because we cannot press, then I think you can see things like what happened versus PSG. It's just a good thing. We also faced a team that has like very similar issues and the absolute chaos of the the second night could happen. We could go out and win that game. I do want to talk about the women's team, but before we do that, just one more question from a patron, Martin Grossman, who said at the start of the season, I think there was reasonable concern over how players of Alaba and Militao's respective profiles would be able to replace Varane and Ramos. Yet at this point in the season, they seem to have done tremendously well. How have the roles of that partnership changed in order to maximise the new skill sets, especially for Alaba, who is suddenly much more of an on-ground forward threat, progressive centre-back than say an aerial ball winner. Have these new methods or principles changed how the rest of the team must play as a result. Yeah, I don't think that much really, because in Alaba and Militao, you have two defenders coming in who are really well suited to defending higher lines. And now Real Madrid under Ancelotti are not necessarily a high pressing team, but against the vast majority of sides, just by nature of having the superior offensive talent, are going to have to play on the front foot. And so even if we're not pressing, we're going to be recovering from situations that are almost always in the opposition half right? And Alaba and Militao are going to be near the halfway line because of that. And they're very, very good. Like they're made for those types of situations, right? Alaba's best attribute as a defender, in my opinion, is his ability to cover space in behind. Militao is very good at that, but is also an extremely aggressive front foot defender. So in a sense, he replaces what we lost with Sergio Ramos in that in that aspect. And Alaba is, is somewhat like Varane in his defensive style. So in that sense, I, I mean, not much has changed because that's the majority of the weight. Like that's the most valuable type of defense Real Madrid can, can have because that's how we're going to go into most games. It is true that Alaba as a box defender, that's where the drop-off is. So interestingly enough, maybe in these types of settings where we need to sit off, it can actually hurt us a little bit, but it hasn't affected Ancelotti's thinking because the press has been so bad that basically going into that second leg versus PSG, he had just decided as much as possible against any opponent, whenever we can, we're just going to sit deeper and try to sit in some kind of mid block or below. And so I would say there's many interesting questions to consider about that type of defense and how Alaba is suited for it with his box defense. And if you want to maximize your capabilities, right, you want to be on the front foot as much as possible, playing a high line, controlling the ball, because you can take advantage of what Alaba is doing with his passing, as, as Martin said, but it has not affected the way Angelai sees things because there's just a certain tactical reality with our ability to play on the front foot at all times. I would say the other maybe small difference here is that Militao's progressive passing and just his reliability in that aspect is not super amazing at the moment. Like it's, it's pretty mediocre. I know that Real Madrid's left-sided bias affects this, but his numbers are also worse than Veron and Veron has weaknesses in that area. So it's made us more vulnerable to pressing, I would say, but not like a hugely dramatic amount, but I would say it's made us more vulnerable to pressing. And then the other like really specific thing is Alaba has replicated so much of the good progressive stuff that Ramos had at Madrid, except the switch to the far side. Alaba does not play those. It's just, I think, a bit harder for left-footed players on the left side to play that because the, the natural curve of the ball goes to your own goal instead of away from it. 
Ramos became extremely prolific with those in, in, in his final seasons and became a really reliable way to progress pass pressure. So I would say like there's a couple things on the passing elements and the box defense that are different, but has not really had much of an influence on how Real Madrid have approached things under Carlo Ancelotti. You cover the women's team, the Feminino, quite a lot. And I did want to talk a little bit about this because I do think it is important that we that we talk about women's football and the tactical elements of that and make that more of a high-profile thing. I think the interesting question to ask about that is we've talked about how the men's team is so dominated by this, this sort of issue of, of being a Galacticos team and being structured as a result of that need by Florentino Perez for his team to be entertainers. To what extent does that sort of pass over into the women's team? Is it is it completely different? Is there no need for quite that same approach? And does that mean that they have the flexibility to be a bit more tactical? It's a whole other conversation because what we're really talking about here is how much does Florentino Perez and Real Madrid's upper management care about the women's team to the point where they're going to like actually take the reins and guide recruitment in a way that fits the vision I was talking about earlier I don't think they don't care because there's clearly a progress that's happening with the women's team that looks like it's going to take us to good places, but they don't care about the women's team like the men's team. Like it's obvious. I know Madalistas like hate it when people point that out, but quietly within their own circles, we all know that's the case, right? Like sexism in football exists, right? And because of that, it's largely been a pretty hands-off approach, right? There, because we ended up acquiring an already existing club. They had their own structure. We had to weed out some certain bad characters from from there, which kind of maybe indicates that we weren't paying that much attention when we took over the team. We're just like, yeah, we can kind of do this. And then we're like, oh, you know, we need to clean stuff up because we're Real Madrid. But at the moment, there are people in charge who largely just kind of operate as they want to operate with over time. And this is really difficult to figure out because the information available is so bad. And most of the time I'm just working through sources or sources people have, or that they tell me from sources they have, but Florentino has placed like his confidants near the woman's team to just kind of keep an eye on things, see how things are going. But as it stands, right, Anna Rosell, the current sporting director is basically guiding the team as she pleases. Right. And so basically what that means in women's football and the environment that exists now, it just means picking off the best players from the side that can't afford the same salary is basically what it means. And in terms of any tactical coherence, like Nige, it's the coach, how he comes in, the way he sees the game, the players he has, it, it operates almost completely differently. And it's interesting because Real Madrid right now cannot do anything defensively at a high level. And it's about what can they do in possession? Kroos, Modric, Real Madrid Feminino, when they're placed into really reactive, almost gegenpressy type schemes, like what we saw versus Barca, seem to do really, really well. But their weakness is the in-possession stuff, right? We don't quite have the midfielders at that level yet, or we have promising midfielders that have yet to kind of grow into that. And we don't have quite the same outlook in possession that that would allow us to dominate games the, the way the men's team would. So there's actually a really interesting contrast there. Um, I've kept you for far too long, but let's just conclude with an answer to that question then that we started this podcast off with. So how important are tactics for elite sides? Do you have any concluding thoughts on the topic? Yeah, I think they're really important and I think it's increasing every day. And I think it determines the ceiling of what a club can achieve. And every time a rival club ends up deciding, okay, we're going to make the game by hiring a coach and committing to it, that 
just increases the need for other clubs to do it, right? Because you're directly competing against that type of team and, and winning is ultimately, as I said, is, is what's most important at the end of the day. And so, yeah, if tactics helps you win more, then obviously it matters a lot. I think the key here is that it doesn't matter more than the talent at hand, right? The players are the most important because they're the ones who go out and win, be as tactically brilliant as you want. But at a certain point, if you don't have players at the elite caliber, you just, you can't win football matches. You can't win titles. And that creates sort of a relationship between the two that then makes other aspects and traits more important, right? So player management then matters a lot. This is why X players will always have a place in management because they can get an automatic level of respect that even a really good communicator who comes from like outside the sport and into it, maybe like a Mourinho or something like that, though. I don't know if I'd say really good communicator with him, but you know what I'm talking about, that they will just never be able to attain, right? It doesn't matter how good Nagelsmann gets at managing players and being able to communicate. He's not Zidane, right? Zidane will always have a greater level of respect. And as much as us nerds dislike it, being one of the greatest players of all time just matters to footballers, right? And they will respect that a lot. So that aspect will always exist. But with there being a real recognition from more tactically oriented managers that we can't be the dictator in the dressing room, right? We can't just say my way or the highway and then finding more ways to be compatible with players, being more flexible within their own philosophies to accommodate different types of talent. I think every day we're moving towards needing some level of tactical proficiency in the modern age to be able to compete at a high level and to be able to achieve the ceiling that these elite clubs need to achieve. And in a way, I think this is why Zidane is a good compromise because he has, I mean, he is him. He has that natural aura. He has a lot of those intangibles that is difficult for someone else to pick up because it's not like someone can just go out and have one of the greatest playing careers of all time. Right. And he has some level of a tactical outlook that fits the modern game. I just don't see how there will never be a place for people like that, but tactics are important. And they've always been important. It's just that the tactics keeps evolving. And so it becomes really important to keep up with the times and keep up with how tactics are evolving is, is kind of how I'd phrase it. Well, um, it's been so great having you on. Before we finish, I should just say that next week's episode is going to be all about the tactics of the Serie A title race. I'll be talking to Abel Mejarosh, a Hungarian pundit who is covering Serie A this season. So that will be all to look forward to. Um, what's the best way for our listeners to catch what you're putting out? Twitter is the best place at OMVA Sports. You can find me there. I post everything I do. You can also subscribe to my Substack, Tactical Rant, substack.com I think is what the actual URL is but if you go to my Twitter you'll see my pinned article right there those are really the two best ways you can obviously find me on Managing Madrid specifically with the two podcasts the Managing Madrid podcast and Las Blancas podcast which is just part of the Managing Madrid podcast network so yeah that's where you can find me it's not really difficult always tweeting probably tweeting too much but yeah my content is always out there yeah, and needless to say, if you've listened to this whole episode, you'll know that he is one of the best tactical thinkers at the moment. It's been a pleasure having you on. Listeners, do go and check his stuff out because I do think it's like really at the top level of this stuff at the moment. But um, thank you so much for coming on today. My pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast about tactics. I'm John McKenzie. 
If you like our artwork, then do check out Frankie Mitchell's portfolio over on her Twitter account at MadeByFrankie. Her work is incredible and she's often available for commissions, so do check that out. And then this music, written and recorded by my good friend Joe Hill and his North Ark Septet. You can find out more about them and listen to the music at www.joehillmusic.bandcamp.com. See you next week.